everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined as always by Neve. I am Neve. And this is a movie podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give everybody a, a peek behind the curtain for a second. Um, we recorded about three minutes, and I needed a do-over for various reasons. And um, then, of course, as soon as we start doing that do-over, I start getting acid reflux. So this podcast is already wildly off the rails <laughs> <laughs> um okay well do you want me to just do my little bit about do, do the you, you did a little yeah. spiel before i was like ah fuck it we're gonna start over so yeah. do, your, do your little spiel about marvel movies again if you don't yeah mind. so uh emily is continuing her quest to watch all the mcu movies um Rewatching many of them in the process, but uh, in trying to like watch new ones, realizing that she just didn't know what old ones she had and hadn't watched. Where, um, like, even just having a watch list of you need these ones to watch that movie was not super helpful. Um, and so yeah, she she's just been marathoning it, but now she's like watching it like she watches TV shows, which means that like as soon as a movie ends, she just starts playing another one, um, and she'll like in the middle of a scene just pause because it's bedtime and things uh just this like way that i cannot comprehend watching movies i just can't watch movies like this i'm like i gotta like watch the movie as like a a thing i have to mm-hmm. like sit down and watch a movie you know this about me i we can we can pause for like pee breaks but i don't want to like watch half of a movie and then come back like a day later and watch the other half um I definitely would never start a movie with, like, 15 minutes before bedtime and just watch the first 15 minutes and then pause it and go to bed. I can't do it. I don't understand it. Um, I, um, this week I did start watching Collateral because I was like, oh, I hear this movie's good. I'm kind of sleepy. I'm probably going to fall asleep partway through this movie. But I hear this movie's good. I'll pause it. And I got 45 minutes in. And one... I did have to, I was like, oh, I want to fall asleep, but I have to get to the end of this part because this is really exciting right now (laughs) and I can't pause it. And then when I like set it down, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to come back to this on like Sunday or something and like start over. I'm going to have to like see this as all one thing, you know? Yeah. Um, Which I don't always do, but I was really enjoying Collateral and I wanted to like let the tension like ratchet up naturally, you know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and it's also, like, after we get our toddler down, Emily and I both have, like, chores that we do before we, like, relax and just sit on the sofa. Um, but mine doing the dishes just takes a lot longer than hers, which is, like, taking out the trash and feeding the cats and cleaning up some of the toys in the, the living room. Um, and so she would also just start it while I'm doing dishes and usually listening to a podcast anyway. So I, like... M- had no chance of like following or conceiving of what I was watching anymore as like distinct movies. Um, Mm -hmm. the, the most like vivid one to me is whatever movie sequentially, like, you know, release order came out after guardians of the galaxy. I just remember like looking up and it was guardians of the galaxy and then looking down and then like a few minutes later looking up and being like, what the fuck's going on? Like, this is not space or anything. And she was like, Oh, it's, whatever the next movie is. And I was like, I don't even know when that happened. So, um, (laughs) I don't have like any thoughts on any of them. I like, it is like just become the white noise that's on the screen now to me. So, um, if people um, are looking forward to more MCU thoughts from me, uh, sorry, but I guess they can listen to pop town funk for some MCU thoughts. 
Yeah, just briefly, because you did mention Guardians. Um, Nora and I are going to do a pop town on Guardians 2. We're probably recording that on Sunday, hopefully, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, and yesterday we both had the day off, and in the morning we put on Guardians 1 just to sort of refresh ourselves. I, and I, we were like, oh, we'll just put it on. We'll sort of pay attention. And for the first, let's say, 45 minutes, I was like, oh, I'm enjoying this movie more than I expected. I thought this was going to be really cringe and bad, and I'm having more fun than I expected to. This is like a three-star movie. And then around the 45-minute mark, I, like, went up to go to the bathroom, and while I was in the bathroom, I was like, oh, right, I needed to get this thing done. Oh, I needed to get this other chore done. And just found doing my chores more engaging than watching the rest of this Guardians movie to the point that I forgot we were watching that movie. <laughs> yeah. Until the very last scene, I was like, oh, right. Um, Guardians was happening. <laughs> my main memory of the first Guardians movie was that it was just like, because I saw it in theaters, because Emily enjoys seeing a lot of his movies in theaters, um, and it was just like a fun popcorn movie. There's oh, a lot wow. of needles drops in it, but they kind of explain it, and it's like, okay... Um, I remember Guardians 2 being substantially worse mostly because it's about dad feelings but not in any like actually deeply interesting way Um, but yeah do you, you watched we'll get to what I've been I mean this is like not that much of a surprise compared you know after last episode I was watching stuff it was just not like movies unless you consider it uh, 10 parts of a movie so right. <laughs> do you want to talk about the movies that you watched? Um, yeah, so two things I watched. One, um, so once again, last night found myself in a situation of, uh, it's getting to be bedtime. I want to put something on. I don't want to super duper engage. At first I put on, um, Criterion has a, on the channel even, a commentary track done by um, Steven Soderbergh and Tony Gilroy on The Third Man that I started watching and thought was really engaging. Um, the stuff they were saying about that movie, I thought was really interesting. Got about like 45 minutes in and I was like, ah, I saw this movie so recently. I kind of don't want to be watching this right now. And I just somehow ended up watching Blade Runner. I literally do not remember. Like what was the thought process that got me off of one streaming service onto another and watching Blade Runner. Don't know what that train of thought was, but yeah. (laughs) Um, put on Blade Runner Watched maybe 20 minutes max last night. Watched most of it this morning. Um, <clears throat> and um, the thing about Blade Runner, uh, and I tweeted this, but like the thing about Blade Runner really is that like, I think there's like ideas in that movie, much like Ghost in the Shell. I think there's like things that movie is saying. Um, I think those things are interesting and worthwhile and worth exploring in like a piece of art. But the real reason I'm watching Blade Runner is that it's really fucking cool when you see, like, you know, the big, like, fires shooting up on the, like, cyberpunk Los Angeles skyline and the flying cars and Edward James' almost ridiculous facial hair, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes, I do find Rutger Hauer's, like, monologue at the end very moving, but I also think it just looks really cool when there's like a, a frankly unnatural amount of rain just pouring on a set 
Like, through that entire movie. It it is an absurd amount of rain. It has never rained that hard anywhere on planet Earth. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I, I... This is my third or fourth time watching Blade Runner. Um, and I honestly, like, so the first time I watched Blade Runner, I didn't like it. Then I came around on it the second time. And then I think I watched it a third time. Um, probably in like 2017 or 2018, I feel like there was like discourse about cyberpunk that was really common in like video game communities at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I rewatched it then, and that was when it was highest in my estimation because, like, I was like, oh, man, this movie is so thoughtful about certain things. And um, I got even more of that this time, but mostly I just liked looking at it. I, yeah. <laughs> I just think it's one of the most, like, visually, like, beautiful movies that's ever been made. And, and that's really all I actually care about, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um. Not to, you know, discount anything else happening in that movie, but it's not nearly as important as just how gorgeous that movie is. Yeah, like, on on one hand, uh, cyberpunk is not just an aesthetic. On the other hand, it is a hell of an aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I also it should be noted, like, I, th- I think of myself as generally cold on cyberpunk as a genre, um, and... Some of that is, I think that's like, there's a lot of reasons I think I'm like cold on cyberpunk as a genre. Um, But I think probably the most dominant one is that like, it is like an aesthetic that like video game people spent all of like 2016 to 2019 arguing about for reasons? Question mark? It's a thing yeah. that everybody like had a lot of feelings about and like needed to discourse about, but I didn't think it, a lot of that discussion was actually productive, and so I was just listening to podcasts for years <laughs> where people were arguing about this. Um, so as a genre, I am indifferent, but like Blade Runner, I think like I care about sort of independent of its place in that genre, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um. um. Blade Runner really succeeds by mostly just being a noir, but that's set in the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I am simply the noir movie liker. That is yeah. just my lot in life. Um, I did. I forget if this. I don't know. Like sequentially, you texted me about like how does this connect to Blade Runner twenty forty nine? Oh yeah, because you know that Harrison Ford comes back. Um, yeah, I did explain it to you, and I do think that you should watch the movie, because I think how it connects to Blade Runner is the stupidest part of it, and there is, like, actually good stuff in there, or at least, like, kind of interesting stuff, um, but yeah, how the the two movies connect is definitely some of the, like, stupidest lore stuff. Yeah, oh, that's what it was, is that when Blade Runner 2049 was coming out, that's why I was... That was part of why everybody was talking about cyberpunk so much, I think. Yeah, and then um, probably also that was around when that cyberpunk game hadn't come out yet, but there was probably a bunch of, like, press trailers stuff Trailers and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, when 2049 was coming out, I was like, oh, neat. Like, a sequel that is getting, like, some 
critical praise, maybe there's going to be a little more like, you know, substance to this than a lot of the, you know, other like reboots that have been happening over the last couple of years, like say Prometheus, you know? Um, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So maybe like the, this movie might have a little something more going on. I never saw it at the time. And then watching it today, I was like, this movie ends with essentially like Deckard and Rachel running off to die together. It's weird <laughs> that Deckard is then just in the next movie. <laughs> and that was at the time when that movie was coming out was not bothered by Deckard com- coming back at all. Watching it today, I was like, why on earth would you bring Deckard back? That is the worst choice you could make for a sequel to Blade Runner. <laughs> Uh, I I understand that like Harrison Ford is a very bankable star even in you know whatever yeah. year that came out but like man <laughs> I know a thing that came up around it too which I think is like in terms of um like how this is being constructed I think is just the best way that this uh like plays out but that apparently Ridley Scott believes and always believed that Deckard is a replicant in the story mm. Harrison Ford believes and always believed that Deckard is a human and the actor being like, no, I'm playing a human. And the director being like, no, you're a robot who thinks that you're a human is just the best way that that like arguments on set could play out. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That is frankly ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, anyway, Um, speaking of noir. Yeah. I watched, uh, I th- sorry, I realized that that's where I was supposed to speak. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also watched, um, a little earlier in the week, uh, Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear. This is his second or third American film. Um, if people are not familiar, Fritz Lang directed Metropolis and M, um, and obviously other things. Um, yeah. he was you know, one of the most respected directors in Germany, um, fled the Nazi regime in the 30s, came to America, started directing a lot of anti-Nazi films. This is, Ministry of Fear is a heavily, heavily, heavily anti-Nazi film, you know, coming out in 1944, obviously. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I <clears throat> have wanted to watch this movie for literal years and have never got around to it because... Um, I, look, I really like M. M is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the title is really cool. That's about the extent of it. Oh, and, and point number three, Criterion has really good box art for this one. Um, yeah. Some of my favorite box art they've done. Those are my reasons for having wanted to watch this movie for years, um, which are also, you know, not strong enough reasons that I ever got around to it in <laughs> all this time. Um but I'm really glad that I find I'm really glad that I finally did. Um it's uh it's a like noir movie about this man who <clears throat> it's, a noir, it's a noir movie. It is based on a Graham Greene novel, you know, much like The Third Man. Um yeah. and it is about a man who um like <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like, I wanna, like, quickly provide, like, my feelings about this movie, and so I'm going to, yeah. like, I was gonna do a quick and dirty plot summary, but I'm actually do, like, a 
kind of detailed plot summary just because I really want to like convey as quickly as I can to you, the listener, the experience of watching this movie. So we open on this guy in an insane asylum and it's like he was sentenced there and he gets out and he's like, I'm going to go to London because I want to be around as many people as I can. I've been trapped in this asylum for years. So he goes to a carnival and a psychic or a fortune teller, a palm reading lady, tells him, you should guess the weight of this cake is like four pounds and three ounces or whatever. Um, And you should say it's made with real eggs. And so he goes and does that. And they're like, oh, you can have this cake then. And then all of a sudden, um, like, four Nazis come up out of a clown car and get really upset that this guy is taking the cake. And then he goes and he's like, well, it's my cake because I'm going to take the cake later, Nazis. Um, (laughs) And he gets on a train and there's an old guy who boards the train with him who he offers the guy cake. And the man starts like crumbling the cake in his hands and says, hmm, must be made with real eggs and beats the protagonist over the head with a cane, runs away with the cake starts shooting at him, and then gets blown up by Nazi bombs. (laughs) That's the first 15 minutes. And if you're like, none of that makes any sense, (laughs) it doesn't. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Much, much later, like an hour into this movie, because everything gets, that's not even the weirdest shit that happens in this movie. There's a seance. um, There is a tailor who has scissors, like, as long as my arm. It's a weird movie. But it's, like, all purposeful because, like, um, about an hour in to um, the movie, the main guy gets captured by who he thinks is the Nazis, but it's it's Scotland Yard, who are like, hey, you're, like, running around London, like, getting into trouble constantly. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) basically yeah um and he explains the plot of the movie thus far and the guys at scotland yard are like this is the craziest thing we've ever heard you are fucking crazy (laughs) a man took your cake and started crumbling it in his hands and then got blown up what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) um so for me i like you know one i was like watching this movie being like at first i was like is this like a weird like studio interference movie that like made sense at one time and then like because of meddling like an editing or something it it got all messed up and then i started to realize like oh no it's purposefully like weird and dreamlike Uh, it, it leans into that some with like you know uh, Fritz Lang, obviously one of the like classics of like one of the classic directors of German expressionism, like in moments, not through the whole movie, but in moments, like leans into the sort of like dream dream reality of German expressionism, um, especially in some of the more like suspenseful scenes in this movie, and like throwing um, this character into. Like, situations that don't make any sense, putting him into, like, sets that, like, visually, you're like, 
why is that why does this look like this you know like why why are these angles like this why are these you know stairs like curving and um, all this sort of stuff so <clears throat> anyway um and i think it's like so i i started to have this feeling about this movie um that I'll say in a second. And then I was like, I don't know if maybe I'm reaching. And then I watched the criterion channel had a, like uh, a historian doing like, you know, just here's a 20 minute video essay about um, ministry of fear and everything that he said sort of backed up the things that I was feeling about the movie. So that felt very validating. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just that, you know, you, you take a movie, um, and this is a couple years later, but you take a movie like The Third Man, and it's all about this sort of, you know, post-war, like, moral ambiguity. Should you should you snitch, you know, um, when your, like, gay best friend from college is killing children? Um, uh, you know, classic like, dilemmas. <laughs> classic dilemmas. <laughs> um, and, like, like, or, or or a movie before Ministry of Fear, like Casablanca, you know, you get this sort of, like, moral ambiguity from the scenario, or, 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 or from the, like, from the, like, there's very clearly, like, two sides uh, of the third man, or from Casablanca. I don't consider Casablanca a noir film, but, like, you know. Um, yeah. Ministry of Fear produces that same sort of like you know this is during the war like ambigu moral ambiguity not by like there's two clear-cut sides but, but by like there are nazis everywhere you don't know who they are you don't know who to trust can you trust yourself maybe you did something that like accidentally like you know delivered something to the nazis um like can you trust your own past? Can you trust your memories? Can you trust, like, all these sorts of things? And the sort of, like, bizarre, like, dreamlike reality of the movie that does not make any sense. Like, Lang is doing all of that very purposefully to sort of, like, illustrate, like, you know, <clears throat> for... This is maybe projecting too much authorial intention, but I, I'm reaching here because it's, I'm reaching for that because it's easy, you know, like, um, like you, you do all that to create this sense of like what it is like to be a German citizen in, you know, the thirties and forties, um, and like trying to make sense of a world that is like, you know, in a political climate that seems to change every day, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's really fucking good. Um, it's a mess. It's a, <laughs> it's a weird movie. Um, the, the main actor, <laughs> uh, gives an uneven performance at best, I would say. <laughs> um, but it looks gorgeous and it's, it's a hoot. Uh, I wouldn't go in expecting something as good as M, but you know, uh, I really had a good time with this, so uh, really, really highly recommend it. If you know, if you like the third man, you know, like it, it's not the third man, but like you know, if you want something that sort of gives you that same flavor, like I really highly recommend Ministry of Fear. 
So yeah. Um. um time. Yeah. Time for me to do. We'll we'll have another cutaway. This is what's gonna happen here. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna mark gonna talk... this in my audio. I think yeah. you're editing this, but I'm gonna mark it just in case. Um. So yeah, we're gonna talk about Twin Peaks: The Return parts nine through eighteen, aka just the end. All of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Shall we get to the main movie? It's happening again. <laughs> Stairwells, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's watching happening a again, movie. but it's me. Yeah, it's me referring to watching a Kitano movie. <laughs> um, I would have kind of liked to have watched this when we did Sonatine, but it just didn't work out timing wise. Um, yeah, I think I think this would have been a stronger episode if we watched it back to back with Sonatine, but that just wasn't going to be able to happen. So yeah, that's yeah, whatever. You know, um, but I do think that like, so there were technically two movies that he did in between. Um, I know one of them, um, getting any was specifically billed as being directed by Beat Takeshi, not Kitano Takeshi. Um, huh. but I think there was another one that, um, I forget if he worked on it or if it just came out after his crash. Um, but I feel like Hanabi is the one that's like, one is like specifically talking about things happening around his, his motorcycle accident that he like thinks of and talks about as being a suicide attempt. Um, and then also like connecting it in ways to Sonatine. Um, and it's been a while since I've rewatched this one. It's also a great movie. Um, it's weird. Cause I feel like it is less nihilistic than Sonatine, but also sadder. Yeah, I um I was um I was watching this and being like, 
do I like this more than Sonatine? And I think that's, like, not a question I want to ask myself tonight, but, like, I am really floored by this movie. Yeah. It's fucking depressing. Um... Yeah, it's the it's the uh cancer road trip Yakuza movie. <laughs> Is it a Yakuza movie? I guess it's a Yakuza movie. From a yeah. certain point of view. From a certain point of view, the police are just Yakuza. Well, and like most of the conflict happens around like borrowing money from the Yakuza and stuff. Yeah. Um, Nora um Nora was has been reading the book um debt the first five thousand years this week yeah and was explaining some of the concepts to it from me and i had a moment where i realized i don't understand the difference between like the yakuza and an actual government other than like scale (laughs) (laughs) Um, um i mean yeah You're kind of correct. (laughs) Um, I'm not correct, but I'm a little correct. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's like scale and uh, international legitimacy. Yes. Are really the two big things. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, shall I explain in brief the plot of... um, uh, 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 Hanabi? Were you Hanabi. about to say I, Sonatine? I was like, yeah, my brain just got yeah. stuck on Sonatine. Um, okay, this is the best of my understanding because some of these things... Uh, the movie starts in a sort of non-linear way and then sort of condenses down into a more linear narrative at a certain yeah. point. There, I think um, there's a way that you could read what's happening with the jumping back and forth as being like, this is all happening in the, the present when he's like visiting his wife in um, the hospital and everything. And then is like having flashbacks to these like, yes. Events when he was a police officer, but um, it could also just be film is such that there's very little distinction between a flashback and just jumping around non-chronologically sometimes. Don't worry. We'll get there. Yeah. (laughs) Cause uh, that just ties into like, my general feelings about this movie. <laughs> um, so, but I'm, I'm just going to summarize in a more or less chronological way. And, you know, if you haven't watched the movie, you're going to lose out on some of some of what I think makes some of this stuff more interesting. Um, <clears throat> so Kitano is playing a cop um, named Nishi. He is partners with a, a, a man named Mr. Uribe. Horibe, yeah. um, <clears throat> uh, which is funny because I just kept misreading it as horrible at the start of the movie and was very confused. Um, and they're doing a stakeout uh, with two other like junior cops, you know, ju- junior in rank. You know, they're not children. Um, they're doing a stakeout and Oribe tells um, Nishi, Kitano's character, hey, why don't you go visit your sick wife in the hospital? We're just going to be, like, sitting in this car for three hours. You know, like, the hospital's nearby. Your wife is in the hospital. Why don't you go visit her? And so he does. um, And while he's gone, um, like, some some dude, like, it's not even really clear, like, what, what they're staking out, but some dude 
shoots um, Horibe and paralyzes him. Um, and so <clears throat> the the two younger cops and Kitano like find this guy uh, in like basically a mall. Um, Kitano, <laughs> the two the two like younger cops are like watching him from a distance. They're trying to like plan out what to do, and Kitano just jumps him. <laughs> Yeah. Like literally, like the guy is like looking at a magazine stand, and Kitano gets into the magazine stand and leaps out of it at him. Yeah, it's wild. Um, they struggle. Um, in the struggle, uh, one of the younger cops is injured, and the other is killed. And Kitano's character, um, like empties a full clip into um this this suspect quote-unquote yeah i mean his his first bullet goes into the guy's head and then he's just like shooting into the corpse yeah like Um, the man is dead kitano like stands over him and then just keeps firing um you know uh important to note uh here like in sonatine that we do not get any sort of access to like the thoughts and feelings of any characters in this movie um and so like there are a lot of actions that Kitano's character uh, is is going to take that could have many different motivations and many different like you know uh, reasons behind them. You won't get to know any of them. Uh, yeah. You only have you know like what you can interpret from like his face. This so. is also a thing of because in a lot of stuff there's like a a certain stoic quality to um, most of the acting in general. Uh, and especially, like, um, Kitano's acting, he, like, will be extremely stoic. And this is one of the first ones where he really starts taking advantage of the motorcycle accident left him with a, a like, facial tick. Um, and so sometimes his face will, like, tick. And so then it, like, might be conveying some emotion, but also it is this, like, involuntary tick. And I he, he uses it a lot in this, uh, I think, like, intentionally in this film. I think so too. I think there's like a lot of his acting where you can read the tick as just that, or you can read it as like, Oh, was he about to emote and then found a way to hide it in this, you know? Yeah. Um, was he about to give you something more and then like shook it off with that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, some amount of time, I would guess like a couple months later, um, Horibe is in a uh, wheelchair um, and Kitano's wife is being released from the hospital. Um, Kitano is no longer a cop and he's been borrowing money from the Yakuza, presumably to pay for his wife's treatment. It's never really said, but I assume that's what it's for. Yeah. Uh, possibly to help out Horibe too. Um <clears throat> And, um, so the doctor is basically like, your wife isn't going to get any better in the hospital. Like, you should just go and enjoy the time you have left with her. That's going to do her more good than, you know, any medicine I could give her. Um, so, um, Kitano, uh, like, plots a bank heist basically so that he can like take her on a trip he's gonna pay off his yakuza debts and he's going to take her on a trip 
And I thought this was going to be like a huge chunk of the movie. It's actually a, a pretty brief chunk, though it feels significant in the moment where he just like befriends a guy at a junkyard and like buys a stolen taxi cab off him and <laughs> um, paints it to look like a cop car and then goes and robs a bank um, disguised yeah, as a cop. There's like, a, I think, a certain intentional uh, trick that's being played here where in a normal movie like this, the like centerpiece of the climax would be like the bank heist or something, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And just like very intentionally, like it's all over by the midway point of the movie. Um, and the heist is just like the most like low key. I just like walk in, uh, kind of flash a gun. She gives me money. I walk out. I'm like dressed as a police officer. Um, He's an ex cop disguised as a police officer uh flashing his badge and gun to extort this woman for money i wonder if any sort of commentary is being made here on the similarity between the police yeah. and yakuza <laughs> um. um certainly no experience that neither of us have had about cops just walking into places of business and expecting you to give them free stuff yeah <laughs> um and then getting really mad if you don't and then saying that they won't protect the store anymore uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I worked as a barista as well. <laughs> um so also worth noting that sort of concurrent to Kitano's character picking up the um hobby of you know painting this car and fixing it up and you know getting planning this bank heist. Um and also just sort of you know, indulging in violent behavior in his day-to-day life, you know, he just, like, yeah. has some guys wash his car and just, like, beats them up for no reason. You know, he um, is, like, roughing up the Yakuza that he's borrowing money from for, you know, seemingly, like, no reason. You know, certainly none that we have access to, once again. So, and, and parallel to this, um, you also have um, Horibe... Um, is taking up painting. Um, Kitano's character has been sending him painting supplies, um, and that guy is just seemingly trying to like find meaning in his life now that he's no longer a cop by it, through painting. Yeah. So, uh, also, this is after um, like they have this talk, and Kitano's character leaves him on the beach, and he kind of like rolls into the water, and the water starts like covering the wheels to some extent. Um, and I have this reading of like the beach and, and water in particular being like crossing over from life into death, uh, that also ties into stuff that happens in Sonatine. Um, Mm. and then it's like hinted at that he was considering suicide and, um, attempted it by taking sleeping pills. And that's part of why like Kitano's character is now sending him these, these materials as well being like, you know, do this other thing, like do something creative. Yeah. Um, um, also, as a and note, so, the paintings that Horibe is doing are actual paintings because after um, the motorcycle accident, um, Kitano Takeshi got really into making art. And so it's all uh, Kitano's art. Yeah. Um, so from here, you know, he pays down his debts to the Aksa and takes his wife on a trip. Uh, and they mostly just have a really nice time. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. 
they mostly just enjoy the Japanese countryside. Um, as you start to see, like, the younger cops are like, you know, I have reason to suspect that, you know, like, oh, this bank robbery happened with this guy disguised as a cop. And then all of a sudden, you know, Nishi goes missing. Because yeah. he doesn't, he's not, you know, going around to all his, his former job and announcing, like, you know, hey, I'm not, <laughs> hey, I'm taking my wife on a trip. He just disappears one day. Yeah, um, and he, he sends a bunch of money to the uh, widow of the one cop who died and um, also to Horibe. Um, yeah. Um, and so the the police are trailing him. Also, seemingly by magic. Maybe I missed it, but at some point, like, the Yakuza start catching up to him. And I'm like, yeah. how do they even know where he's at? What are they? Oh, well, they got connections. I don't know. Film <laughs> logic. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I. It, at some point, I started to to feel like the the... The Yakuza were more like death haunting us all, you know, and mm-hmm. you can try to run from death, but it's going to catch up to you because it doesn't make any sense how they catch up to it. Man, a movie about Yakuza haunting you. Uh, we really got to watch Taste of Tea sometime. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, um. so you just get a lot of very sweet scenes of him and his wife connecting um they're yeah. both incredibly quiet stoic people but you know they just do their best to enjoy this trip together and um kitano occasionally sees a yakuza and has to murder him um but it's chill it's all good and, yeah you know his his wife seems pretty unfazed by it <laughs> um yeah there's also a lot of like smaller rules breaking like one of the big ones being like you know uh, like grandfather figure or something goes up to this like bell at a temple with uh, the grandson and the grandson's like, can I ring it? And he's like, no, like we can't ring it, but you'll hear it ringing this evening. Um, and then they walk away and then like the ringing starts happening because Kitano's jumped up there and is like ringing it to, you know, break the rules and have fun basically. Um, I think it's like mm-hmm. key that multiple of these moments involve like, there are these ways that he's breaking rules that are like these greater societal rules around like don't murder people and rob banks and things. Um, but also that like part of the joy that they're getting is like from doing these like smaller pranks too. Um, mm-hmm. Although my favorite just charming moment is the, the cards. Uh, they're like doing a game where she's lifting up cards and he's guessing what it is. And at first she doesn't realize that he's just reading it in the rear view mirror. Cause they're in the car. Um, and then she like catches on and does the chocolate bar. That's like one of the cutest little moments. <laughs> um, so, uh, eventually, you know, <clears throat> this trip sort of comes to an end and the police catch up to Kitano's character. And, uh, he just asks them for a few last moments with his wife. Uh, and they stand on the beach for a while watching a young woman like flying a kite um and uh eventually uh, i guess this is implied you know i don't know this but um the, the film ends as you know you 
the camera pans out so you're just seeing the ocean and the tides rolling in and you hear two gunshots that I assume are Kitano killing his wife and then himself. Um, yeah. Uh, um, and yeah. There's potentially a little ambiguity of like, did he kill his, the like police? His yeah, police there's definitely like, going, there's but, two cops. You, he yeah. could definitely be killing those police officers. Um, um but I feel like the, the like, especially because there is this um, certain like dark romantic um, trope that exists in Japan around the like romantic double suicide. Um, that's what's more heavily implied. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, this is a sad fucking uh, movie. But this is a sad movie. <laughs> It's a fucking sad movie. Um, I really, really, really loved this movie. Um, I guess... I have, like... I have, like... This is, like, not the thing I like doing on stairwells. I don't really like doing, like, thematic readings of movies on this podcast. But I do have one that's been really itching at me. Um that I, I guess I wanted to like share and see if you like wanted to push back or like add to it or whatever. Yeah. Which is just that the thing that I felt so much in Sonatine, especially on revisiting it was just the ways in which like, you know, Sonatine is a movie about the, in some ways about the artifice of film, you know, it, it's about these people who are, pretending to do this job of being the Yakuza um, and projecting these certain things. And, you know, what happens when you can't project that toughness? What happens when you can't project like the, the strength, you know? Yeah. Um, I found this movie and it's because none of this can come through in me summarizing the movie. Like you really just have to go watch the movie to, to experience this. But so much of the movie is about like, these long shots of like you get Horibe like out in a garden and just looking at the cherry blossom trees. And then you just get like this beautiful shot of him of the cherry blossom trees. And then you get the shot of him looking at the cherry blossom trees. And then you get like, you know, these sorts of like divorced of context, like shots of the paintings that Kitano has done um, that, you know, Horibe in fiction is painting. Um, mm-hmm. And for for me, like, so much of this, this film was about, like, images <laughs> as a concept, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and also, like, you know, um, de- death is, like, everywhere in this movie. Um, like, you know, Kitano's character probably wants to die. Horibe definitely wants to die, or at least does it one part through one part of the movie. Um, you know, Kitano's wife is going to die. Kitano is killing all these people. Death is everywhere in this movie. Um, but the road trip to me felt so much about like, death is everywhere. Let's try to enjoy life while it's here. Um, and these, (laughs) you get these people who like, 
sort of you get like Horibe who like once you take being a cop away from him once he can no longer be a cop like is incapable of like living or enjoying life and you have to like have these lengthy scenes of him just learning to appreciate like things in life that are not work you know he has to he has to stare at these flowers for such a long time before it even starts to like creep into his mind that there might be something in life that isn't being a cop you know um one of the last lines of the movie is um kitano and his wife are watching this woman play with the kite and the two police officers are watching Kitano and his wife watch this woman play with um, the kite. And uh, one of the police officers says, I could never live like that. And it's ambiguous. Is he referring to Kitano and his wife? Is he referring to the girl flying the kite? Either way, much like Horibe and much like Kitano's character is like unable to conceptualize of life outside of work, outside of being a police officer. Um, and the only way he can even sort of kind of do that is like mediated through images and watching. Like he has to watch Kitano watch the girl, you know? Yeah. Um, he would never, he would never, he would never just stop to watch this girl fly the kite. He's only doing this because it is his job to be doing this, you know? Um, yeah, and the most human thing he does in the whole movie is, or is the the most not work thing he does in the movie. I don't want to equate being human with not work. Um, is like giving Kitano these last moments. Yeah. Um. I, yeah, that was a little like I don't know unwieldy, but that was sort of like my feeling about this movie, I guess. Yeah, and I I think it ties in some with like. Because I sort of, when we did Sonatini, I gave this read as well about, like, um, this, like, oppressive, uh, fascistic, like, existence represented by, like, working with the, like, working for the Yakuza and just, like, being stuck in that. And the beach and this, like, moment where they they go to the beach to, like, hide out provides Mm. this, like, little glimpse into something that is not that work and that is, like, something outside of, like that kind of system and that way of living and that way of existing. Um, but it being something that they don't know how to attain. Um, like they, they get this glimpse of it and they can like exist in that little liminal space for a while, but they yeah. have to return to the real world. Um, and there's these like glimpses of hope that exist. Um, and I think that like Sonatina is sitting at the point of like before the suicide attempt. And this is sitting at the point of like after the suicide attempt where you've almost like, you've reached that point where you think perhaps like the only option for me is to cross over into the water. Um, like that is my only escape. And then you survive and you have to keep living. Um, mm. and you have to like figure out what to do next. Mm. Um, which as someone who like, has struggled with this stuff. Like these are also extremely relatable feelings for me where you go through an attempt and you have to like figure out what to do next. Um, and I think it's kind of showing like the, these two 
these two paths that exist. There's the like what's happening with Horibe, and then there's what's happening with um, Nishi, um, Kitano's character, um, and like Horibe is like is kind of imagining this like life. Like a lot of the paintings towards the end to include like this family that he has lost. Um, mm. Like the, the child is there and things like, I think it's commented on earlier. There's something about like the death. I forget if it's Nishi's kid or, um, or Horibe's kid, but like a, you know, a kid was lost as well um, at some point. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's like this envisioning of like a family and things, but like so much of what, um, Nishi is like imagining these through images, but is not like fully going out and attaining them. Um, Mm -hmm. But then this also reveals in the, when he does the painting that says like suicide is written in big red in all of the snow, the like white snow, you know, big red character, uh, Japanese character that says suicide. And then we get this like splash of like, it seems like blood. There's almost this like tension moment of like, oh, did he kill himself? And we get the splash of blood and it's revealed that he just like threw red ink onto the, the paper, like right in only representing in, in dealing with it through art, perhaps he is not like fully attaining all the fullness of life, but it is also like protecting himself to some degree from like these other impulses. Whereas Nishi goes out, and is like, yes, I am going to like do this big road trip and I'm going to break all of the rules. Um, but also like in there's certain, there's a certain, like the, also this being called Hanabi fireworks. There's a certain amount of like, you know, burning so bright that you burn out faster. Um, yeah. it's kind of what Nishi is doing. And part of what I really like about the, this movie is that I don't think it's, I think early on you see like, Oh, Horibe is dealing with it through art and Nishi's dealing through it with violence. Um, and obviously Horibe is the one who's like come to the better solution, but I feel like it ends up being less judgmental in the end. Um, even as like, there's still like a certain tension of like, it does seem like it ends with a, a double suicide or like a murder suicide, um, with Nishi and his wife. Um, so like, it is like still this like kind of sad bleak thing, but then also like some of the most joyful moments in this movie are just like Nishi and his wife hanging out. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's like a a part of it that, um, especially thinking about it in terms of like Sonatine, like it's also, I think significant the main character here is a retired police officer. Like what happens after work? Um, what happens when you are done with work and you have to learn, you actually have that space. Like all these characters exist in a greater degree of liminal space than the characters in Sonatine did. Um, in some ways, because they have like pushed through the initial fear of death or like the, that initial, um, like I'm just stuck in this and there's no way out. Um, Mm -hmm. but then, also, once you, like, just find yourself existing in the liminal space, that is also, like, terrifying. And you have to figure out what to do with yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in some ways, like, in some ways, it's, like, a really bleak existence. Like, the 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 early scenes where you're, like, wow, these police officers, like, all of them, the older ones and the younger ones, 
really cannot conceive of life outside of like being a police officer. And then the movie is sort of like panning out, like, you know, can anybody, can, can anybody like conceive of life outside of the work that they do? Like, that's just like, (laughs) it's a really hard thing to do to like, think about like, what is your life when you're not producing? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, and like, I think it, there's, there's lots of other little interesting moments here, um, where like Jorge Bay is talking about his painting and he's like, oh, I'm an amateur, like specifically positioning himself as like, this is not like professional work I'm doing. This is not, you know, uh-huh. it being amateur is like specifically is one him like kind of judging himself, but is also demarcating it as like not productive work in the same way. Um, and then, yeah, Nishi's just, like, fully breaking all the rules. <laughs> um, but, great movie. I'm so yeah. glad that we revisited this, because it's been a while since I... I liked it more... Uh, I mean, when I was going through Letterboxd and setting it up, I put four and a half stars, because that was my memory of it, and now I watched it, and I was like, no, this is five stars. This is... Yeah, um, this movie is really exceptional. I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't. There was there was a part of me that like sort of like, I don't know the the person who grew up grew up posting on forums about movies like that wanted to answer the question: Is this movie better than? Um, is this movie better than Sonatine? Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Like, I, at least not right away. Maybe like. If you ask me a year from now, I'd be like, you know, I would probably prefer Hannah B to Sonatine. Right now, I just want to, like, appreciate these two movies, because I just think this movie's fucking incredible. Yeah. I really like them as, like, being movies together as well. Absolutely. I I like thinking about these movies together. Um, I think, like, both of them are informing each other in, in ways... Uh, obviously Sonatine is informing this, like, more directly, but I think there's a certain amount of, like, like the flowers at the end uh in the like post credit sequence um for Sonatine like get imbued with even more meaning here um absolutely absolutely um <clears throat> you know something else i was thinking about um in connection to Sonatine is like Sonatine is this movie where so much of it is about play and the color palette of Sonatine, I think, is, like, in general, a little more saturated, like, across the board, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I was really noticing it at the very end, like, and it could just be, you know, different beach. But, like, the the water at the, on the beach in Sonatine is so, like, dazzlingly blue. And here you could sort of see more of the white of the sea foam and the the... the sand on the beach yeah and, it's just like a uh, little bit more of a muted blue um, it's a little bit more of a muted blue muted blue and i think in general it like just like by five percent i would not have noticed unless we watch both of these movies back to back um or so close to each other yeah like this movie is just a little more muted which i think makes it really interesting that like you then place into this movie with a slightly more muted color palette like all, so many of Kitano's paintings, because not only do you have, like, Horibe's paintings, but, like, they just go to the Yakuza office, and you see, like, 
Kitano's paintings on the wall. And there's there's not like a in fiction reason for Kitano's paintings to be there. You know, Um, there's not an in fiction reason for his paintings to be up at the hospital. But like for his paintings to be um, such a key part of this movie. And I, you know, his his paintings have an almost like, you know, are, are so dealing in like, you know, red, blue, yellow, like primary colors um, that like really pop, you know, because, yeah. you know, I don't think he's like a classically trained painter. I think he's a guy who took up painting at one point and, you know, yeah, <laughs> had, a, had a motorcycle accident, thought about what was that about? Um, and then it was like, I should maybe start painting. <laughs> I should yeah. maybe, because uh, also so much of this is about like you kept joking um that like men will literally uh direct and star in a movie rather than talk about their feelings um <laughs> but I, like i think there's also a certain amount of like through art like you are able to express these things that like no, you know the um Horty bay like can't really say very directly to the people in his life that he is suicidal but he can so easily do a painting where the word suicide is written in giant red letters. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's like a certain amount too of like, especially when you are existing in this like very like repressive state. Um, sometimes through this like art, you're able to, to reach out and um, say things that like, you're not saying with words you were like saying through other um, emotional thing because this is a deeply emotional movie even as hardly any of the actors emote (laughs) yeah it's like a deeply emotional movie that is like i don't want to say impressionistic because i don't think i know what that word means but like it's a very emotional movie that is not very like expressionistic is the word i'm going for like it's not you know like those feelings still don't come out externally at all everybody's feeling things constantly and you can tell that they're feeling things but no one says those things you know yeah um something else i thought about uh just sort of a dumb stupid joke while we were watching the movie um joey saishi scores this movie and while i think he does a very good job on this movie i have listened to lots of joey saishi soundtracks where he does not fucking try (laughs) yeah and so I was listening to the soundtrack of this movie and I was just thinking about Ghibli a little bit because, you know, I, I know his scores so well at this point. And I, I, I think so much about how American audiences are like, did you know that um, Miyazaki uh, invented the idea of negative space in films? It's an ancient Japanese art concept of the thing that's not there mattering just as much as what's there. And Miyazaki is literally the first person who ever brought this to the medium of cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, American Ghibli fans really <laughs> great on my nerves. As yeah. you can tell. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I do. I was thinking about how like this movie is like those tweets, like, like it is it is uh Kitaro just turning the negative space knob up and like looking back at the audience like how far can i turn this knob up how how much <laughs> negative space can i put into the movie yeah. <laughs> um God. 
I was just like looking at his paintings while you were talking. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of like negative space in his paintings too, because he's yeah. just like, I'm going to draw a cat with flowers for eyes. Uh, that's the one idea I had. So the rest of the canvas is going to be black. Yeah. No, red. <laughs> um, some of the sculptures he did are great. I think oh, the only I didn't ones that the sculptures too. The only ones that show up in the the movie, I think, are the little um, like Takimakura. The there's like the three little dolls that show up at one point, but um, mm. but yeah, he did like sculpture versions of some of his paintings of the like animals with flower heads. Um, but yeah, both fireworks and flowers too being like images of things that um. Like a flower is a thing that you you cut to like put into your home, and it's like basically already dying, and it's going to wilt and and die away. But like you get this brief moment of beauty, um, and then fireworks also being like a thing that explodes, but is beautiful for just a moment and then vanishes. Um, clear symbolism going on there <laughs> around just like the transience of life. We will mm-hmm. all die. Um, we will all die. Uh, until then, we're gonna wait our night. Oh, gonna we're gonna wait us. We're going to waste our life being cops and yakuza and whatever else shitty jobs that we fall into. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and hopefully, in the moments between, we can find something meaningful. Um. I think that's like most of what I have to say about this movie. I love this yeah, movie a lot. Yeah. I love Kitano's yeah, I movies in general. He's great. I th- I think this would be a more substantial episode if we had like done it with Sonatine, but you know, yeah. And um, also, if I'd watched like other movies other than just ten one-hour parts of a Twin Peaks: The Return TV show movie, who knows? Do we want to rate the stairs? <laughs> Um. Yeah. How are you? Oh, I didn't rate the stairs for I. I rated it in the spreadsheet, but I didn't get oh, ratings yeah. for stairs for Blade Runner or Ministry of Fear. So, uh, I guess I'll touch on those real quick. Blade Runner A plus probably would be an S if we were watching Blade Runner together, but I didn't want to go the full S on like yeah borderline really good stairs in that movie. When I really rated it in an earlier episode, I th- I think I just did a flat A. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to like go the full S. I feel I feel very strongly about the A plus, but I didn't want to give it an S without, you know, consulting you. Um, Ministry of Fear, B plus. I don't remember why, but I did write it down. <laughs> All right. So good thinking ahead. Um, And then Hanabi. What are, well, how are we feeling? We got um, we got better stairs in this than Sonatine. There's a really nice oh, like yeah. uh, spiral one that's kind of in the Yakuza hangout area, um, but we get a couple other good ones, including the stairs up to the the bell, which is like maybe one of the more thematic ones. Yeah. Um, the so in the Yakuza hangout, we get the really cool like kind of like modernist stairs that kind of curve a little bit and he walks up the you know he's sort of in 
the lower part where he's talking to the Yakuza, and then he walks up to the upper part. I mean, it's like this guy who's kind of his counterpart in some ways. We didn't talk about him at all, but he's this guy who just wears a white suit the whole movie and just kills people randomly or hurts people randomly. Yeah. Um, and that guy points a gun at him that isn't loaded and shoots him, but it mm-hmm. it's not loaded, so nothing happens, obviously. Um, which feels thematic, which makes me would, if it wasn't for that, I would maybe say like B minus, but I think maybe that moment bumps it up to like a B plus for me. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like B plus. Like if you, if you were really pushing me, I could try to get it to an A, but I think B plus makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to try and edit out as many coughs as I can, but, um, sorry if any of them made it in. Dear listener, here's also Lem being a little menace. <laughs> Ow! Claws! Um, I think that's it. Do we have emails? We didn't do a call f- for we emails. We didn't do a call for emails, but I can check. Yeah, I didn't think that we were recording. Oh, there is one that, like, um, Joao sent to me... A long time ago, and I forgot about it, and then I just remembered it today. It was, like, through a DM or something. Um, but it was, like, I forget the exact wording of the the question, but it was basically, like, are there any movies that, like, remind you or feel like they were shot in your hometown? Um, and I remember thinking about it for a really long time, because I just, I just don't know if I have one. Um, what I think of as, like, I mean... The one that I moved to in middle school is like um the the Virgin Suicides is basically that town. Um but the one that I grew up in in like you know like up until middle school. Um that one I just like I feel like I can't think of a town that has this like in a in a movie that has this vibe of like it's just a bunch of farms and the population just like doubles every summer because migrant workers come in to like pick fruit like that just doesn't Mm -hmm. i just feel like there aren't movies about that kind of extremely extremely small town um i um am able to cheat on this question uh i have not seen this film but carnival of souls was literally shot in lawrence kansas so yeah (laughs) um among uh, along with many films uh made by uh professors in the you know film studies department uh many of which i have seen and uh many of which uh are not that great but it's fine it's fine yeah. it's fine <laughs> um yeah i feel like the closest that like a town like i grew up in you would have happen is like you would have a Coen Brothers movie where it's not going to be set in the town, but there's like one scene where they're like driving long distance and they stop at a gas station in the middle of fucking nowhere. That's where I grew up. Is the gas station <laughs> in the middle of fucking nowhere that's just like a brief interstitial where they go in to buy like snacks as somebody gasses up and then something weird happens. I this I think about this a lot. It's a really dumb thing. Um, my freshman year of, um, college, I was like on break and I was at my mom's house and one of my best friends from high school was over there and he was telling this long story cause you know, 
went to high school in, in Missouri, and then he went to um, college up in Minnesota. And he tells this story about like this random town, um, I believe called Illumi, Iowa, where he got like stuck because he was trying to refill his car and he couldn't. Long, funny story about getting stuck in the middle of fucking nowhere. And at the end of the story, my mom was like, Autumn, you know that's where your grandpa's from, right? <laughs> this little, just by total coincidence, this like town of like 400 people in middle of nowhere, Iowa, that yeah. my friend then like, you know, 40 years later gets his, his car stuck in for a little while. <laughs> um, yeah, that's where I live. That's where I lived as a kid. <laughs> that's not where I live anymore. Now I live in Chicago. There are, if you're talking about hometown as in, like, where I'm a local now, uh, there's lots of fucking movies that feel like they're shot in Chicago. Uh, for example... The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Uh, also just a bunch of stuff from the, the Wachowskis. Those sisters love to, uh, set stuff here in Chicago. Um, because <laughs> they did, like, come up here. Um, it's very funny... If you ever watch Sensei, there's just, like, parts where um, they move very quickly from, like, south side to north side sometimes in that that show in a way that is, like, disorienting to me, someone who lives in Chicago. Um, But anyway, do we have any other emails? No, I checked. There was nothing. You know what's the best movie that is shot in my city where I live? Hmm. Maybe not, like, best movie, but, like, best for it being Chicago. Blues Brothers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That movie's That's fucking a Chicago-ass movie. Um, much better than yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Weird. Weird. You haven't heard Bag End yet, so you don't... Okay, weird. Whatever. <laughs> it's just you and M both, like, on consecutive podcasts, you, neither of you have heard this, just like... Talking up Blues Brothers. You both just, just like, yeah, I fucking love Blues Brothers. I do Brothers. know that, that M likes Blues Brothers. <laughs> yeah, M and I are agreed on this, that it's, like, the best of, like, that that genre of, like, SNL, you know, comedy movies. It's just, it's just funny that it came up two podcasts in a row for me. Yeah. That's all. It's a fucking good movie. Like, what do you want? I haven't seen it in ten years. I remember really, really liking it, but it's been a very long time, so. Yeah. Well, now that you live here in Chicago, I think, like, at some point we should just watch it. If we just, like, we have some downtime. Um, oh, 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 oh. Um, I'm gonna... You talk for a second. I'm gonna pull something up. Sorry. Okay. Did we, did we have any more emails, or was that it? No, there was no more okay. emails. That is to be expected. We didn't do a call. Um, you wanna tell them what we're watching next time? Yeah. Next time... I thought maybe what you were pulling up is that you were changing what we were watching next time, but no, no. Okay. Um, cause you were talking about that other thing next time we're watching. I mean, this is your pick, but, uh, Chung King express from Wong yeah. Kar Wai. I just wanted to cross it off my list and I wanted to watch it with you. And this is the easiest way to get us to watch a movie together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm going to pull up the secret planning document real quick, so I can see. After Chunking Express, we're doing the Teriyama film, right? Yes, and I'm pretty sure I am still going to try to find some time. Now that I'm done with Twin Peaks, I think it'll be easier to like find a night to do it. 
Uh, but I do want to find some time and rewatch um, Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets. Um, I know that it's longer, and I think that, like, Pastoral just has a lot of things that I, I know you would, would latch on to, but um, it's been a while since I've revisited um, Throw Away Your Books, so I, I just want to revisit it and, like, make a final decision there, but... Um, so... Next, we'll watch Chunking Express. Then we'll watch a film by Teriyama. Yeah. And then after that, my next pick that I put down was The Umbrellas of Cherbourg by uh, Jacques Demy. Yeah. <clears throat> Which I put down because I am not well-versed in musicals at all. It is um, a huge blind spot in like uh, cinema for me. Um, that is 100% rooted in, like, growing up and being taught musicals are gay. Uh, you don't want to be gay, do you? Don't like musicals then. So, um, and then I made that decision, uh, like, you know, May, let's say 28th or something, like a couple days ago, right? Yeah. And Criterion, um, because it's Pride Month, one put out a big collection of Judy Garland musicals and two um, put a spotlight on some other musicals that they already had on the channel, including uh, Simon Long's 1998 uh, film, The Hole, which is, uh, let me see here, set just prior to the 21st century, this apocalyptic tale. Um <clears throat> follows two residents of a crumbling Taipei building who refuse to leave their homes. Blah, blah, blah. Um, this is a really in-depth plot summary, but Simon Long did a gay 90s musical. Um, yeah. I'm not saying we replace Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but, like, Umbrellas of Cherbourg is, like, just over 90s, 90 minutes. The whole is also just over 90 minutes. I would like to find a way that we could do both of those things if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, do a musical double feature. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, literally found out about this movie today and was like, well, I can't watch that by myself because if I watch a Simon Long uh, uh, movie um, by myself, God, no, no. Yeah. Um... um I will say I I am sometimes mixed on musicals because there's like this like very Rodgers and Hammerstein version of musicals um, that can very easily grade on me. I mean, it's like what gets done at high school theater stuff. And I encountered it a lot because I did uh, set des like design stuff for uh, my high school theater. Um, I was the butch in the back building the sets that was that mm. was my role um but uh like carousel is just one of the worst musicals i've ever seen in my life uh, i hate carousel so much but if people like with that caveat have musicals that they think that i would enjoy um let me know it is a thing that i haven't like explored a lot in part because most of what i got in high school was just like this very specific style of musical that um yeah, that's the other thing yeah. is, one, being taught at a young age, like, musicals are gay, you don't want to be gay, don't like musicals. And two, um, spending 
a not insignificant amount of my, like, I would say 80% of the musicals that I have seen in my life were high school productions. Um, yeah. Which maybe points to why I did not enjoy musicals very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. But also there's just, like, a very specific musical style to, like, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein and, and those kinds of things that... um mm-hmm is I know is not the only thing, but is the thing that a lot of theater kids play all the fucking time on like boom boxes while you're building sets. So mm-hmm. um something that's not that. I've already gotten enough of that. Yeah. Um yeah, I think that's it. We Um I might I'm I will this is pretty explicitly not the thing you're looking for but i might try to on my own time squeeze in one of these judy garland movies because um i don't know seems fun yeah i mean some of those are like ones that i might enjoy if it's like really like of the era Mm -hmm. some of that stuff can can land better than um i don't know there's also sometimes a certain like Come on, it's like turn of the century now. Why are you why are you just like harkening back to these same things all the time? Um mm-hmm. but Um Oh, Gene Kelly's in one of these. Okay. Maybe I'll do do those. I don't know. Um I know people love singing in the rain. I don't know. Yeah. We're I'm now casting about randomly. We should wrap this up. We should, because I have to pee and also I'm sick and I would like to go to bed. So, Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Thank you.
white on white translucent black capes back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled That velvet lines The black box Bella Lugos is dead
year is it? Good question. <laughs> um, I I think I'm gonna talk less. I mean, I have more thoughts swirling in my head now, but yeah. I feel like I want to talk a little bit less than I did last time, in part because I'm sick and I would like to go to bed, um, and I would like this just to be a shorter episode, and also because I think some of that stuff... One is that, like, I finished it today, um, and it's all mm-hmm. just kind of, like, in my head right now. Yeah, I have, like, thoughts I'm saving still even just because it's like i want you to have a chance to sit with things and see how you feel about it before i start telling you oh well i think this about that you know and yeah. like throwing you off um and also i think like there's just gonna be so much time for us to talk about twin peaks stuff when we get to twin peaks so um but yeah i i think like the biggest thing that struck me towards the end was um because there's, there's kind of all of these threads that are being, like, developed throughout the series, and then a lot of them actually don't really end up getting wrapped up because um, a bunch of it comes to this head of, like, one punch man is here and he's a bloke, um, and he punches the, the thing that comes out of Evil Coop real good. Um, and it's a big happy moment, and then a whole other episode has to happen. Um, with all the other, like, going back to try and save Laura Palmer and everything. Um, but I, I think the, the, when I was thinking about, like, what are all of the, the threads that were being developed and, like, where did we leave characters off? Um, I think the, the big thing that I, I've, like, noticed right now, and then I'm gonna, like, continue to mull on and, and probably develop other things further, um, but I think there's this like very intentional thing on Lynch's part of all of the like, I mean, honestly, most of the female characters in general in this show, but all of the ones who are recurring actresses from the original show in particular um, are kind of like stuck in, in loops or um, like not mm-hmm. actually really progressing beyond that and often seem to be in like more strange like you know, the zone lodge spaces or things yeah. that are like maybe more dreamlike. Um, so we get Sarah Palmer. Interestingly, the two parts that become the like most intense, that is when they go to bars because Sarah Palmer is like, often when we see her in um, the house, it's like stuff on repeat that she's watching, which mm-hmm. the most notable one being the like extremely long sequence of just the, the boxing match on loop. Um, mm. Oh, and I then, always think of the, like, the tiger, like, tearing the antelope apart yes. or whatever it is. But that one's, like, so so intense and graphic, and also it's kind of just, like, noises um, that I think, like, the loop... I don't, I don't remember if the loop is even there or if it just... Um, like, when I rewatch it, I'll be paying attention to, is the sound actually looping or not? Um, is she mm. just watching the same scene on repeat or is this kind of just like an ongoing nature documentary in that one but for the boxing it's like specifically even looping huh um and we're also getting like called attention to with a lot of her stuff around like we see before the boxing match that um that she's watching on tv that she like goes to the liquor store to get um vodka and bloody mary mix and is like confused that something has changed in the store 
um, and has her whole breakdown. And then during the boxing match, she's like, oh, I'm like out of vodka and um, like the Bloody Mary mix. Like, I guess I'll have to go back to the store, essentially. Um, Mm. Which implies this, like, just being stuck in this cyclical uh, life. Um, And then, of course, the part where she goes to the bar, she, like, reveals her face and eats a guy's neck. Um, Genuinely? And, like, this was my gut reaction in the moment, and it is still, like, my reaction in the moment. It is still my reaction, like, five years later, like... Sarah Palmer, like, removing her face and, like, killing that man, maybe the thing that on film that has affected me most in my life. Like, I just think of that image constantly. I was yeah. <laughs> genuinely, the first time you told me you hadn't seen The Return, my first thought was, oh, you haven't seen Sarah Palmer removing her face. Yeah. That was the first thing I went to. <laughs> um, But, and so that, like, implies like a strange because the one other time that we see someone do that is laura palmer do that like very obviously in this like lodge space with Mm -hmm. cooper uh towards the very beginning of of the return um doesn't eat face but does like do the remove thing um and then like audrey is stuck in this like weird like being gaslit constantly by this like horrible man um scenario and then when she finally goes to the roadhouse to like you know go and see whatever uh it's like oh next it's gonna be like audrey horn dancing and it like becomes this like very bizarre sequence of her dancing that also feels like something that maybe could be happening because like in some ways it's hearkening to the the like dancing that occurs when um leland palmer comes in and is freaking out and stuff but also could be like there's also the dancing that happens in the the uh, lodge as well that we see throughout like Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, if I think about like, I mean, Norma's maybe the one person who like kind of gets some sort of break, but it is specifically around like Ed being able to realize his relationship with her. Yeah. Um, but she's still even stuck in this loop of like being taken advantage of by these other guys because now there's this new guy who's like trying to use her image basically to, to make a bunch of money. Um, and the, the people who seem to like have progressed the most are a lot of the male characters, especially Bobby Briggs, um, who just like becomes one of the standout actors of this one. Um, yeah. He's really fucking incredible in the, he, he's so good in the return that it makes me appreciate like that actor more in the original series even. Yes. Um, but yeah, and so, like, and again, this is, like, I just finished it, and I'm, like, kind of formulating these thoughts, but I think there's almost, like, a an intentionality around, um, because there's this, there's this idea that's often talked about when it comes to cycles of violence, and especially this, like, very gendered violence, um, that honestly kind of prizes the, the, like, men who break the cycle more than, like, the women who's still have to deal with that trauma. And I think that there's like a very intentional um, representation of that happening in this series where all the women who endured all of this trauma are still just stuck in that trauma as the men are like changing and growing and like being able to become new people, but it's not like helping the, the original people who were affected by this. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, that was one of the things that like that, 
that jumped out at to me the most is like this series in particular seems um really preoccupied with like the passage of time and aging and also like people who become stuck in moments in various ways like you know literally in the show but like more figuratively like the way that that trauma like for many people will, will keep them stuck in like a certain time in their life mentally um whereas other people are like allowed to continue to grow and change so yeah that was the big thing that that stuck out to me throughout all of that, i um but. this is like a i think an incredibly basic reading um that i want to like preface with you know once again i saw the show once five years ago um yeah i've developed a lot as a critic since then um i always think about like how much i wanted coop back you know all through the yeah. stuff and he comes back and you get episode 17 that is like this incredibly pat ending of like Everybody goes back to the the sheriff's department, and the music's playing. Yeah, and it's what you th- wanted. Everyone's back in Twin Peaks. We've got the this music is, and the hero. This is what you wanted here. Yeah, and then you follow that up with eight episode eighteen. Like this is what you fucking wanted. You know, like if you yeah. wanted to, like, like or, or the the result of what you wanted, like what you wanted was to undo or ignore the like trauma that Laura Palmer endured and the, you know, like Dale is going to try and like undo that trauma and you cannot undo it, you know? Yeah. Like, and in some ways by, by like perceiving himself as the hero who can go and like find her and then take her to the home and like, ah, I'm going to have this big like reuniting of like the two traumatized women who can be together now after everything. Um, and in fact, like in doing that is basically just traumatizing this other woman who may or may not be maybe re traumatizing Laura Palmer or maybe just traumatizing some other woman or a happens to be named her or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that's like a very, a very like simple reading, um, but yeah, that is like sort of, that is sort of like my feelings about like the last two episodes, broadly speaking, you know. And yeah, yeah, I'm excited to rewatch it because, uh, you know, just for a lot of reasons, <laughs> more tuned into the way like trauma affects women and the ways in which Twin Peaks is very much about like the trauma that women endure. Uh, yeah. Um, and also like, especially as I got towards the end of this, there was a part of me being like, I wish that I would have watched, I mean it, I would not have watched this now. Who knows if I would have even gotten to it, like by the time that I wanted to have watched the return, you know, before we get to rewatching stuff. But I was Mm -hmm. like, there are stuff here that is like pointing at or pulling at stuff in the, the main series more than, um, I can just immediately recall, even though I've seen, some of those episodes three times, some of them two times. Um, Mm -hmm. And also like I, I watched the last six episodes all today. So um, I haven't like listened to the, the rewatch Twin Peaks rewatch podcast about it. So that's the thing too, is that like, they often are like pulling all of the stuff more. So yeah, um, I might have more immediate thoughts, but it'll also be nice to like, 
watch everything and then um be able to to like get to the return again and know where stuff is going when it's as we're going through it piece by piece um yeah i always think i have better understandings of things when my second time through like once i know the shape of it i can sort of see oh this thing early on is pointing at this thing later on you know yeah really excited to revisit it um but yeah that's that's where i'm at uh also the part where james returns to play the song fucking incredible he's always been cool (laughs) yeah (laughs) james is cool james has always been cool (laughs) bye everyone we're going back in time (laughs) (laughs) we'll see you again in 25 years